This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. I don't know, um, I'm going to paint with a big broad brush here, because I'm especially talking to millennials. You know, you millennials have grown up in a different society than we did. They have had social media. They've been able to get online and post on Facebook pictures of them, or little quaint sayings, or memes, or, or stuff of that nature, thinking that the whole world will notice. I don't know how to tell you this, but when you post something on Facebook, pretty much you're shouting in an empty room. You know, very few people actually see that other than your kind of close friends. And, and we've developed this kind of, um, and again, especially with millennials, although I'm not excusing the rest of us, we've developed this kind of, this mindset that would never fly when I was growing up. I mean, I can't imagine that uh, I would take my kids to Olin Mills when they were really young. But do you remember Olin Mills? Or maybe just my wife and I would go to Olin Mills, or just me. We'd go to Olin Mills and get one of those, you know, professional pictures done. And then I would make copies of it and put it in the mail and send it to everybody I know. Hey, look at the picture of me. What do you think? Tell me what you think. How do I look? But we do that on social media all the time. And I've noticed it's especially that way with girls. I've noticed that um, you've, uh, you know, you've got this young girl and has a picture of her with the, you know, like this and a bunch of comments below. Oh, you're so pretty. Oh, that's really great. Oh, I love your hair. And then you click on just her pictures and you'll find dozens of just pictures of her. She's in the car. She's at the mall. She's doing this. And it's like, you know, we're taking pictures. Why do we do that? I guess we need affirmation. I guess we want somebody to think we're special because we're so disconnected and, you know, we're so beat down just by life in general. Or we've entered into this mantra that the only thing that matters in our life is if we do something important. You know, we, we, and we make this mistake at church. We, we always talk about Bible heroes. We talk about Saul and we talk about Jonathan and we talk about, you know, the disciples and we talk about Barnabas and Old Testament saints and, and then we talk about heroes of the faith. We talk about Cory Tin Boone or we talk about, uh, you know, Spurgeon or Moody or, 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 or these ladies who just went overseas and started great missionary organizations and we just spoon feed all of this to the, to the body of Christ to we begin to think that we don't matter anymore, that nothing we're doing really matters because we're just stumbling forward one trip at a time, making a million mundane decisions, and we've never been brought to this crisis point where we're going to do something powerful for God, because you can only do things powerful for God if your life has any meaning in the Christian church. And it's been an unfortunate consequence that we and I'm guilty of this too, that we have 
brought on the congregation by only pointing out the heroes of the faith. Look at this person here. They were just a, a simple school teacher, and all of a sudden, God got hold of them, and they rejected being a school teacher, and they decided to be some missionary, and they started this great missionary organization, and now 100,000 people have come to Christ, and that's the only kind of life you should live. And that's simply not true. It's not true. The Christian life honestly, is a series of millions of mundane decisions. It's a, it's a series of, of just doing the right thing now. Just, just doing it. Just, you don't have to necessarily do it so other people will notice it. You just do it. Justice and I were talking about this, and he reminded me this, of this on, a, um, uh, on a, one of our Wednesday night sessions, and I can't remember who said it. But he talked about what it means to be a, a Christian shoemaker. Do you remember who said that? Me neither. But he talked about being a Christian shoemaker. If you're a Christian shoemaker, what does that mean? Does that mean you have a Bible verse written on every shoe that you make? No. It means you make the very best shoes you can. You do, you do, you do excellence in whatever you do for the glory of the Lord. It doesn't mean that, that everything you do has to have some gospel tag to it and and, you know, I realize that many of us struggle with what do we do next? What's the next five-year plan? What, what's going to happen? And I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of not succeeding. And if I, if I attempt something and it doesn't work, something big, something that I'm not accustomed to, then all of a sudden people are going to look down on me. They're going to see me as a failure. And, and I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I become paralyzed of doing anything by indecision or apathy or frustration or fear because... I always, in our society, we always take the long view of life. What is your six-month, one-year, 18-month, and five-year plan? I don't know. Do you? Churches, when they get together, the first thing they're supposed to do, we haven't done this, the first thing they're supposed to do is come up with a mission statement. We have to have a mission. We spend eight months developing a 26-word mission statement. Why? Because then everything we do focuses on that mission. No, I mean, the church is fluid. God can change things. Our mission statement should be we want to follow Christ. And whatever he tells us to do, that's what we're going to do. But we have to have a mission statement because that's our, that's our long-range goal. And you talk to pastors today. I mean, what's the goal of your congregation? Well, we're at 300 now. I want to get to 700 in the next two years. And we're going to have satellite campuses everywhere. We're going to open up a bookstore over here. We're going to have a little coffee shop, make people really comfortable. And Why? I mean, what, what, why is everything so long range goal? And let me tell you, I struggle with this more than anybody. Because if I wake up in the morning and I don't have something to shoot for, for me, there has to be some mental goal out there somewhere. I get, I get depressed. I get, you know, just what I'm doing the same thing today as I did yesterday. And, and no, there has to be a goal. There has to be some sort of marker that I'm, I'm shooting for because that's what they taught me in business. That's what uh, that's what they taught you as a CPA. That's why you have financial statements. That why you, that's why you have, have statements of income and loss. You can see where you are and how you're going to get better. And the goal is to have more and more and more and more and more because that's what makes us successful in the world. But when we when, when we begin to integrate that into our thinking as Christians, it begins to it begins to paralyze us for doing anything because most of our lives are not sprints. Most of our lives spiritually 
is a marathon. It's one step after another, one painful step after another. I, I, I was telling somebody this week that if I had to define what the Christian life was all about, I would say it was called stumbling forward. Stumbling forward. If your goal is to, is to, let's say, go from here to a mile from there, and all you did was fall flat on your face, you stood up and fell flat on your face, and you stood up and fell flat on your face, you know eventually you would get there by your body length every time? You know, but that's not, that's, that doesn't preach well. That doesn't go well because what we're looking for is the guys that just, just break out of the pack and run and, and have this incredible story to tell. And now they have to have a blog and a podcast. And now they have to write a book. And now they have to have a Facebook page. And everybody wants to hear their story. And we have to become Christian celebrities. And what about the rest of us? What about the rest of us, which are just, we're raising our kids. We're going to work. We're, we're struggling. We're doing the very best we can. Every day we just get older and we don't see any, any incredible change that other people would kind of raise us on pedestals for. And we get kind of paralyzed and depressed. And it's not, it's not the way the Christian life is. As a matter of fact, if you really think about it, instead of looking at the long five year, 10 year plan for your life, when you're really stuck with what am I supposed to do next? The answer is always, just do the next right thing. This phrase was coined by Elizabeth Elliot, uh, at least the first time I ever heard of it. And if you remember correctly, she was a young mother and her husband was killed in the 50s by the uh, Aku Indians and murdered with the other missionaries. And she wrote a book about it, uh, Through the Gates of Splendor, I think it is. And she went back and ministered with her young children to the same Indians which killed her husband. And people asked her why. Why would you do that? I just wanted to do the next right thing. To me, that was the next right thing. And she didn't do it for praise or adulation. And, and Elizabeth Elliot had a rough life. She, um, she had a really, she had a real rough life. And she just recently died a couple years ago. And she was known as a great woman of God because of her wisdom. And one of the key statements she always says is just do the next right thing. Nothing magnanimous. Just be ready and just do what you're supposed to do. And taking this bird's eye view of Scripture, I wanted to see if this principle really held true in the Word of God, and I was shocked. I was shocked at how much it does. If you remember Moses, Moses is born into royalty. Moses is a prince. Moses could have had it made, and, and all of a sudden Moses saw one of his, one of the um, Jewish people beating on another Jewish person, and he kind of stepped in, and they said, who are you, you know, ruler over us? And he ended up killing out of anger an, an Egyptian who was beating one of the Jews, and they wanted nothing to do with him, and all of a sudden they wanted to take his life. And so Moses, this young man who had everything the world could possibly offer, was driven to the dark side of the moon. It's okay, God. I, I, you know, I did what was right. It was righteous anger. It was righteous indignation. I know things are going to work out, and, and pretty soon you'll bring me back. And the first year went by and God didn't. And the second year went by and God didn't. And the first decade went by and the second decade. And for, for an entire generation, a man's entire work life, almost 40 years, Moses was just putting one step in front of another. He was just a shepherd and found a woman and married her and had some kids and just walked on with life and just did the next right thing until all of a sudden, sudden God met him at the burning bush, 
told him that I wasn't finished with you yet. Why did you wait until I was so old? Why couldn't you have done this 40 years earlier? For 40 years, I've just, I've struggled in, in no man's land, supposedly. And then all of a sudden, you come to me and tell me you want to send me back to, to be the instrument to deliver your children. And Moses, of course, doubted that and he was full of fear and what am I going to say and what if what am I going to say who sent me and how is this all going to work out and what sign am I to perform and I love this I love this statement by the Lord and the Lord said to him what is in your hand it's not a scepter it's not a uh, unlimited American express card it's not the keys to my Lexus or my corner office it's a staff it's a rod it's what I've been using, just doing, putting the next step forward, doing the next right thing all these years. Have I forgot about Moses? Moses probably forgot about Moses, but God didn't. And it was almost like God was saying to Moses, hey, don't fear, Moses. Don't, don't fear. All I want you to do is the next right thing. And the next right thing is simply to obey me. Just Obey me. Then we have David. We've got two accounts of David here. David, of course, as a young man, was used by God to kill Goliath. But, I mean, David wasn't a warrior. David wasn't the kind of guy that, you know, worked out all the time and, you know, kind of, you know, had, had J.R.'s kind of physique and, yeah, I'm ready to fight. It wasn't that way at all. Saul says, how am I supposed to send you out to fight Goliath? David said, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. I mean, that's what I used to do. I did this every day. I had never envisioned me being king. I certainly never envisioned me coming before you, king, and standing before Goliath and actually slaying him. I just did the next right thing. I was faithful at home. God, uh, my dad told me to keep the sheep, so that's what I did. I lived in, I lived in anonymity. Nobody even knew who I was. I have older brothers that are far more qualified and far more courageous than I am. I was just faithful doing the next right thing. As mundane as it seems, keeping my father's sheep, I wanted to do my very best when it came to that. And when a lion or bear came and took out a lamb of the flock, I went out and struck it. That's how I learned this skill of, of with the sling, and I delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defied the armies of the living God. Moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, by just being faithful and doing the next right thing, he will deliver me from the hands of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I mean, it was just, it was just David. Do the next right thing. Well, that's David's high point. David is now king, and when all the armies have gone out to war, David is staying at home being slothful, not doing the next right thing. And he's standing out on his portico one day, and he looks down, and he sees a woman bathing. And so he sees that woman, and maybe she saw him, and he wants to know who it is. And they told him, oh, that happens to be the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of your 30 most faithful friends. You should know that, David. Well, send her up to me. And so brought her up there, and David seduced her, and all of a sudden she became pregnant, and so 
God did, uh, David did everything he could to try to cover that up. He brought Uriah back from the battle and says, here's what I want you to do, Uriah. Go spend some time with your wife so that if you spend time with her and find out later on she's pregnant, you'll think it's your baby. And Uriah was so committed that he wouldn't do that. So the next night, David got him drunk, tried to get his inhibitions down. But, but Uriah's commitment to David was so great that, like he said, the, the army, the, the, the ark of God is in a tent, and my friends and the army of God is in the middle of battle. How can I go spend time with my wife? And so David simply wrote his execution letter, gave it to Uriah, who took it back to Joab, who put him on the front lines, withdrew from him, and Uriah died. And so then David brought her in to his family. Baby was born. Year passed. David thought he got away with it. Until a man named Nathan came up and stuck his bony fingers in David's chest and says, you have committed this horrible sin. What's going to happen? Well, the kingdom will not be taken away from you, David, because of God's promise. But the son that you have now had born to you, this maybe one-year-old child, will die. There is a consequence for this action. And all of a sudden, the son got sick, and for seven days, David wailed. He struggled. He, he didn't wash. He didn't eat. He sat on his, he laid on his face on the floor and he just cried out to God, please don't let this happen to my son because of my sin. Please let it happen to me. Please, please, please. And you know the story. It says that on the seventh day came to pass that the child died. David's worst nightmare materialized. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm implied to himself. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, yes, he is dead. So what do you do, David? What do you do? Do you make promises to God? Do you just weep and wail some more? Do you throw dust in the air? Do you rip the hairs out of your head? Do you get angry at God? Do you, what, what do you do? Do you make all these promises? I mean, what do you do in a situation like that? How do you handle that kind of loss? Tom Wynn has been watching his wife slowly die for months now. And when that day actually happens, and she breathes her last in this life and inhales instantaneously in the life that you and I are, are looking forward to, Tom, what do you do? He's asked me that question a hundred times. What do I do? Where do I live? What am I supposed to do? What's supposed to, what's supposed to happen next? And it's exactly what David was struggling with. And look what David said. So David, he just did the next right thing. What do you do? So David arose from the ground. He washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then when he went into his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Like, how mundane is that? I know, I, know, I can't. I don't even know what the long-range plan is. I don't know what God's plan is for dividing the kingdom. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I just know what happens today. And what I need to do is just the things that I have always done. I need to do the next right thing. And if you read the rest of this passage, after a bit of a dialogue here, you'll find that he then goes, finds his wife, and comforts her. You just do the next right thing. 
It's like God was saying, David, you know what to do. You know what to do. Just do it. Just do the next right thing. Be a man. Be a husband. Be a father. Be a king. Just put one foot in front of another. Don't think about the past or think about these long-range plans. Just do the next right thing. I love the story of Elijah. Elijah, of course, is, has this gunfight at the OK Corral kind of thing at uh, uh, on Mount Carmel. He's standing for God. He calls 450 prophets of Baal. They build their altar. He builds his altar. You know, um, they dance around theirs, calling on their God. Nothing happens. He calls on, on on our God. Fire comes down, consumes them all. The 450 prophets are slain. Israel will now serve God. He girds himself up in the power of the Spirit. Rain comes, and he runs 25 miles to Jezreel. Next chapter begins with Jezebel saying, you know what? Because you've done this to my prophets, I'm going to do it to you before this day is over. And, and he, he melts down. He has this emotional breakdown, so much so that he wants to die. And then he's encouraged. He stands at the mouth of a cave. And, and then all of a sudden God says, listen, I'm, a, I'm going to come by in front of you. And I'm going to do something that most men don't get an advantage of happening. I'm going to reveal myself to you. It says, and there he went into the cave and spent the night in the place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him the very same question that the Lord asked each of us when we're down and depressed and paralyzed by fear or circumstances. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know, but does the Lord know what's going to happen tomorrow? Yes. Do you know the Lord? Yes. And if he knows what's going to happen tomorrow and you're in him, isn't that enough? Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah tells a sad, sob story. I've been very zealous for the Lord God, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I am left alone. It's just me, and now they seek to take my life too. How arrogant. And he said... Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks into pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, which is what Elijah expected. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. And after a fire, a still, small voice. Uh, Elijah. I mean, God never competes with anyone. Just a small voice. So it was when Elijah heard it, he recognized it was God. And he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here in this pit of self-pity? Why are you paralyzed by fear? What are you doing here, Elijah. And you would think Elijah's attitude had changed because he stood there on the, the mouth of the cave and saw this great display of all these physical things that happened. And then God revealed himself, not in that power, but in that still small voice. So much so that he just cradled himself down and wrapped himself in his prophetic mantle. But Elijah hasn't learned his lesson like we don't. Because he, he speaks the very same excuse to God. You don't understand. People are holding me back. This girl won't marry me. I can't get ahead at work. I'm, I'm just, things are terrible. I'm, I'm, I can't get a job. All these tough things are happening to me. 
I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts. He says it again. Because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I am alone have left and I seek my life. God said, Elijah, you need to to go do the next right thing. You need to go do what I told you to do before you got all sidetracked in your self-pity because of circumstances. You need to go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Haziel, king over Syria. And not only that, you shall anoint Jehu, this king over Israel, and Elisha, you shall anoint, because he'll be a prophet in your place. You go back, Elijah, and do the things I've already told you to do. I just lost my job. Okay. Then it gives you more opportunity to be a better husband and a better father. My, uh, my best friend doesn't have anything to do with me anymore. It really hurts. Well, great. That just gives you an opportunity to be a better friend to the people who still love you. Nothing changes. Nothing changes. It's not them who's held us back. God, God just tells us, you wake up in the morning and you just do the next right thing. You love your children. You love your wife. You love your husband. You perform whatever God has placed before you to the very best of your ability. He's the one that deals the cards out. We play the hand he's given us. It was like the Lord says, Elijah, I'm not telling you to do something you don't already know. Just do the next right thing. Just do what comes next. In the New Testament, Jesus performs some amazing miracles. And I'm always amazed when these miracles are performed, how the people responded. You got a leper. Leper comes to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And as soon as he spoke, immediately the the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. What do you do then, leper? I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you have to pay Jesus back for that blessing? I'll tell you what, Lord, since you've done that, I'm going to sell my house and my cars, and I'm going to give them all to you. Oh, a leper doesn't have house and cars. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to follow you wherever you go. I'm, going to, I'm just going to hang with you. I'm going to tell everyone. What, what do you do? And Jesus says, Jesus says that he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, send him away. See that you say nothing to anyone. What? What? You have healed me of leprosy and you don't want me to communicate that message? That's crazy, Lord. I mean, I can't, I want to tell everybody. I know, but you're, what you want to do is counterproductive to what Christ wants to do. And it's because of all these miracles that people started violating what Jesus told him to do. He could no longer freely go into cities because people were crowding around him as some sort of healing man rather than the Messiah in which he was. What am I supposed to do? Just go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. I know that you're filled with passion and I know that you're so excited and I know that you want to do what you think is right. It's not a five-year plan here, Mr. Leper. You don't have to show me all the things you're going to do to try to maybe make you feel like you've somehow earned this healing. This isn't a performance-based relationship. I gave it to you as a gift. 
And all you have to do is just do the next right thing. And what is that? You just obey me. Just do what I've told you to do. Even if it seems simple and insignificant to you. We get saved or God works a miracle out in our life or we pray and pray and pray and God does something great and we feel we need to do something maybe we're not gifted to do or God doesn't want us to do to somehow show him our devotion to him. Somebody called us to do what he called us to do, which is do the very next right thing. He'll always tell you what that is. I love the imagery in scripture where it says that thy word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. Remember that? And I'll never forget this. This was years ago when I lived in Pigeon Forge. I heard James Dobson talking about that verse. And he said, God's word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. A lamp to my feet so I can see where I'm at and a light showing the path in which I'm heading. And what James Dobson said is that's not like one of those lights on top of a miner's helmet, you know, where it kind of shows, you know, 20 feet down down there. It's not a it's not a light on the front of a train which goes down the track like a mile or like some massive searchlight that can illuminate everything. It's not what it is at all. It was simply a uh, it was simply a, a handheld lantern. If you think about the 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 way that the, the the scripture was written. And all that says is your light, your word, is a lamp to where I'm standing right now, to my feet and my path, the very next step. And once I take that step, then the next step is illuminated. And it's a faith-based relationship. I'm faithful here, and I'm trying to trust the Lord in that step. Not 20 steps down the road, but we always want to know is what's around that turn. Well, you'll know when you get there. Now, I want to know now. It's not going to happen. My utmost for his highest. I think it's January 4th, the first couple weeks of January, where he simply says this. Are you asking God what he's going to do? God will never tell you. God never, reve- God never tells you what he's going to do. He simply reveals to you who he is. And that settles the issue. Who he is. You're right, God. You promised to, to, to always do good for me, even when bad things happen to me. They happen by your permission. Maybe it's a trial. Maybe it's a tribulation. Maybe it's a testing. But whatever it is, it produces in me perseverance and grace. And even if it's suffering, I'm able to more identify with you. The fact is that every gift that I have comes from you, from the Father of lights, that I don't have to worry about these inadequacies in my life and try to hide them so nobody will see them because your word says that I am complete in you complete in you, no matter how my situation is, no matter how much money I make or how little money I make, no matter how my upbringing was, where James Dobson was my father or Jeffrey Dahmer was my father, the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter. I'm still complete in Christ. It's a demon-possessed man. It's a wild man of the Gadarenes. Jesus comes and he heals them and all the family, the town comes out and they see him there and they cast the demons out into the swine and and the people ask him to go. And here's this man who had nothing, absolutely nothing. He, He ran around the tombs cutting himself. They couldn't even chain him because of the demonic power inside of him. And all of a sudden he got saved. I've got no family to go back to. And these this town people, they don't even want you around here, Jesus. They certainly don't want me. I just want to go with you. I want to spend my rest of my life with you. And when Jesus got into the boat, this demon-possessed man begged him that he might be with him. Can I just go with you, Christ? And Jesus said, no. No. However, Jesus did not permit him 
that said to him, go home to your friends. I don't have any friends, but you will. You'll make some friends. Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. I just want to go on the mission field. Yeah, because it's easier to share Christ with people in Haiti than it is to share Christ with your mom and your dad and your brother and your sister and your neighbors. It doesn't work that way. Just go home. Do the next right thing. Go home and tell the people who you love and who love you what great compassion Christ had on you and what amazing things he's done for you. Now, he may not have cured us of demon possession, but has he not taken you from darkness and placed you in light? Just do the right thing. So he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. It was like Jesus was telling this guy, look, it's not rocket science. It doesn't require a graduate degree to figure out my will for your life. It's really simple. I just want you to go do the next right thing. You've been given a great gift. Just go tell somebody about it. Tell somebody how I have loved you and changed you, what I've done in your life. Lame man comes to where Jesus is preaching. They can't get him into the room. They open up a hole in the ceiling. They drop him down in front of Christ. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees get all upset at that and says, who is this man claiming to be God? For only God can forgive sins. Okay, Jesus says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, you arise up and walk. So, that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, this is your job, this is what I'm telling you to do, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Now, the arise and take up your bed part, we always focus on, because that's like the miracle that takes place. Oh, wow, he's paralyzed, but now he's healed. But how about the go to your house thing? Just, just go home. Just just go back to your house. Go live your life. Go put the next step forward. Go love your wife. Go love your children. Just just go back. No, I, I can't do that. I, I have to I have to tell everybody about this. I have to follow you around. I'm I'm a living example of your grace and good. No, it's, just go home. Just put the next step forward. Immediately he rose before them and he took up what he had been lying on and he departed to his own house, maybe alone but he was glorifying God. Do you think this man was different when he got home? Do you think he was paralyzed by inaction or apathy or paralyzed by circumstances anymore? Nothing can paralyze. He walked into the house and maybe there's his wife and maybe he was paralyzed from an injury. Maybe he was born that way. Maybe he had wife and kids and he walked in there. I'm a different man. I'm a different guy. I mean, I've been touched by God and I want to be a better husband and a better um, father and a better neighbor than I've ever been, a better provider than I've ever been before. Well, who did this to you? Oh, Jesus, but he told me to come home to you, and that's why I'm here. It's just that simple. You just do the next right thing. You just do what's right and God honoring. One more. I love this one. Jairus' daughter. 
Jairus comes, rule the synagogue to Jesus, please come and lay your hands on my daughter because she's about to die. On the way there, some lady has an issue of blood, touches Jesus, she gets healed. There's a dialogue that takes place. When they get to Jairus' house, they've hired all the paid mourners and they realize that the girl is already dead and they're wailing and mourning and Jesus says, you know, get rid of all these people. She's not dead. She's only asleep. And they laugh him. So he only takes Peter, James, and John and the family and husband and wife, Jairus and his wife, and they go up into the room with this little 12-year-old girl is laying dead. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him. And another account tells us it was that inner circle with Christ and entered where the child was laying. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumin, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years old, and they were overcome with great amazement. Picture this. Your daughter is dead. You've already told all your neighbors your daughter has died. They've already brought the mourners in because your daughter has died. Jesus comes with his entourage. He leaves most of his disciples, nine disciples down there. He takes three up with him. He tells his daughter to rise. She not only gets up, but she's walking around the room, this 12-year-old girl, praising God for what has happened. What do you do then? Jairus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to to stand up on Sunday morning and I want you to pronounce me as God. Otherwise, I'm going to take that healing away from you. I want you to do all these incredible things. You've got to have a three-year plan and a five-year plan and a ten-year plan. And you've got to be performance-based now to somebody somehow pay me back from this gift I've given you. And little girl, man, you you better never sin in your life and you better never mess up in your life because I have great expectations for you because if you don't, To have faith or whatever, you're going to lose this kind of healing. I mean, that's how we think. But he commanded them strictly that no one should know it. And I love this. And then Jesus said that they should give her something to eat. Really? You're talking about food at a time like this? Yeah, just give her something to eat. Do the next right thing. It's not that complicated. She's hungry. Give her something to eat. It's not, you don't have to do anything new. This is something you've been doing as long as she has been your daughter in your house. You don't have to change anything. Just, just do the next right thing. It's nothing earth shattering. Just do the next right thing. Wake up in the morning and fix breakfast for your family with the joy that only comes from the Lord. Go to work in the morning, but spend some time loving your wife and, and blessing your children and then go to work and, and not let the problems of the world and the work out there come home and make you a bitter, angry man when you get into the house. Just do the next right thing. When I walk into the door, that's just my job. But I walk into the door, this is my family. I love these people. Just do the next right thing. Be a blessing. Just do it. No long-range plans, no massive goals here, no performance-based spirituality, no law that we place us under. I, I can't do anything unless this happens. It doesn't work that way at all. But what happens when I'm in the midst of an attack? What happens when I'm in the midst of, of a terrible spiritual attack? How am I supposed to just do the next right thing? I want you to look at these verses. 
Ephesians chapter 6. Now watch this. It says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. How am I to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might? Well, you put on your spiritual armor. Put on the whole armor of God. And what happens when I put on the whole armor of God? That you may be able to, note this word, stand. Just stand against the wiles of the devil. Not be victorious, not advance, not take victory, not cross the finish line in front of anybody else, but simply to stand. Well, who is this enemy? Well, it says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And what am I supposed to do? Therefore, because that's who we're wrestling against, take up the whole armor of God against why? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done everything you can possibly do, your goal is just to stand. We think if we're just standing in the middle of an attack that we've somehow failed. Well, the enemy's still attacking me and I didn't kick the enemy down. No. You're taking the full brunt of the satanic realm against you, which is stood. I will not back down. I will not quit. I will not let the enemy make me a bitter man with my wife or my children. I, I will not make, make him change my nature on the inside. I will not lash out. I, I won't do any of those kind of things. I'm just going to stand. And I'm beaten and I'm tattered and I'm torn, but I'm still standing. And when Satan, if you're in the middle of a satanic attack and you're still standing when the day is over, you have won. It's a victory. It's a victory. Again, it's the old Francis Scott Key thing where they're shelling, you know, um, you know, they're shelling the fort. And, and at the very end of the day, old glory still stood. You remember? Holes in it, tattered, torn, busted up. But you'll not defeat me. You'll not destroy me. I still stand by the power of God. How do I do that? By just doing the next right thing. I just put one foot in front of another and just stand. That's it. Just just stand. I don't have to plan what I'm going to do six years from now. I just know what I need to do right now. And then tomorrow... My next step. And if I take that next step, God will illuminate the next one. If I refuse to take that next step and I'm just paralyzed by my fear and insecurity or failures or whatever it is, or the only law I place myself up under, nothing ever gets done. I don't move forward. I don't grow. I don't grow in the things of God. Now listen, we live in a society that places an immense amount of of pressure on us to achieve certain goals. I mean, Scott has been praying forever to get a job at Gastonia, right? And so far the Lord has said no. So what does Scott do? Well, I do the next right thing. I'm just going to be the best I can be at where I'm at. You know, just best I can be. And uh, I'm going to do the next right thing and serve where I'm at. I really wish I was here, but since God could open that door and he hasn't, I'm just going to, I'm just going to focus on, on what the Lord wants me to do. You know, I've been looking for a job, and I can't find a job. Well, what am I going to do? I'm going to do the very next thing. I'm going to work as hard as I can to find a job. I, uh, I have a really bad job. As a matter of fact, I'm so much, so much under pressure that, that when I come home, I, I, just, I just take it out on my family. Well, that doesn't make you a godly man. What am I going to do? I'm going to leave my job at my job. And I'm going to walk in that door, and I'm going to be the best husband and best father that I can be, best friend I can be to the people that are there. I'm going to do the very next thing. It's faith. It's just trusting him 
wherever we're at, to lead us into wherever he wants us to go. The whole thing with Preston. You know, what are we going to do when Preston gets out? How's this all going to go? I don't know. I don't know. But what happens, you know, what happens tomorrow? I don't know. So we're just going to do the very best we can today. And when tomorrow rolls around, man, I'm going to do the, I'm just going to do the next right thing, whatever that is. And then when you put a, a series of days and in weeks and months and years of just doing the very right thing, you don't realize this today, but that's the life in Christ that he calls the abundant life. That's the kind of life that allows him to move in you mightily because he trusts us with the mundane. And if God can trust us with the everyday mundane, then obviously he can trust us with something more. Amen? So be encouraged. If you're stumbling forward, you're still moving forward. And if, you, if, you know, if God's not doing some magnanimous thing in your life, if you haven't had visions and dreams or, or hundreds of people are not coming to Christ because of your ministry, or, or, you know, oh, it's okay. It's okay. But just do the very next thing with the God, with the people God has placed in your life. If you're a man in here, be a spiritual leader to your family. That's your first priority. Be a spiritual leader to them. Just do the next right thing. And we leave all the results up to him. Amen? Let me pray.